Open your Bibles this morning, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 6. We are finishing up our I Am series, Who Am I? And uh, as we're talking about this topic over the last, this being the fourth week, and uh, I know that many of us can probably relate uh, to some of the things we see on the screen there. Uh, When you feel those ways, I feel desolate, I feel alone, I feel like I'm just, I have nothing. Um, It's times like that that I believe that God is just screaming at us by the work of his Holy Spirit to remind us what's available to us in Christ. And so when you see yourself and understand your life is in Christ, if you know him as your Savior, then you understand that you are never alone. Amen. You are never desolate. You are never beaten down to the point of uh, just utter defeat. We will face opposition in this world. We will face affliction, as we've said before. But in Christ, we have a security and a confidence to know that our Savior is strong. Uh, This morning, again, we're finishing up our series, and we've covered a lot of ground. We've discovered that our true identity is found in the person of Jesus Christ. We will be afflicted in this life. We can endure those afflictions and those trials with joy because we are heard by our Father through prayer. That's beautiful to remember. Last week we talked about this idea that we are heard by our Father. When we bow our heads in prayer, He hears us. Now, I don't know about you, but there's not too many thoughts like that that just leave me in awe. That the God of all creation, the God that, that spoke creation into existence with just His words, that when I bow my head or when I go to him and I, and I pray to him, that because I am in Christ and my sins are forgiven and there is a relationship now between me and the Heavenly Father, that he actually hears me. Like, do you ever just stop in prayer, like while you're praying, and just remind yourself, man, this is who I'm praying to. And I think so many of us, myself included at times, we just run right into prayer. We get our request out and we're back out of prayer. It's like a bank robbery. We're just, we're in and we're out as quick as possible. And then we're going to get away. Because if we stay too long, we may actually sense God wanting to speak to us in prayer. So many times we go into prayer not really wanting to hear from God, but just wanting to unload all these requests and wants, which it's fine. We said this last week. It is absolutely fine to request of God. As your heavenly Father, God wants to hear from you. But if your prayer life is predominantly just you asking of God, then you're missing out in your prayer life. I'm missing out in my prayer life. But when we go to him and we realize, I mean, do you ever just stop? And I try to do this as as often as I can think of it and spend just maybe the first few seconds of prayer time and just just remind yourself, okay, this is who I'm praying to. This is who I'm going before. Like this God is so majestic, so mighty that tens upon tens upon tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of angels worship him continually and never successfully worship him to his worth. And I'm going to pray to that God. I'm going to pray to the God that is so holy 
that the only way I'm even allowed access into his presence is because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And that being applied to me now offers me his righteousness, and now I can go before God. That's how holy he is. Where without Christ, I would not be welcomed. And we talked about it last week, but I want to remind us again that we are heard in Christ. And that is vital because when we're going through an affliction, man, we don't feel heard, do we? Do you ever just go through an affliction and just a trial and a tragedy and you just feel whooped and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and you just, you just feel like nothing is happening? Like it's just hitting the ceiling and coming back down? Man, I've been there. And so how in the world do you get over that? You have to remind yourself, my emotions are telling me this. But the word of God is telling me something different. What did we talk about in 1 John? That your heart might try to condemn you or speak against you, but God is greater than our hearts. And so when your emotions are just crazy and you're, you're feeling all these things, you're being, you're being led into all these ways of thinking, you just remind yourself, no, no, I'm going to rest on the word of God. I'm going to stand on this. And this says that because I am in Christ, period, because I am in Christ alone, he hears me. He knows what I'm going through. And we talked about it last week. So what do we do then when we feel like our prayers aren't being answered? We have to ask ourselves some questions. Is there any unrepentant sin in my life that I need to get out of the way because maybe God is speaking, but I'm not hearing because I've got this junk in the way? We talked about it before. Husbands, I'm not going to hammer on us too hard today, but husbands, First Peter says that if you don't treat your wife with grace, basically love her as Christ loved the church, that your prayers, Peter says, could be hindered. Now, why would that make a difference? Because I'm not, my prayers aren't answered because of works I do, right? But what's the point in Peter's message there? His point is, if I'm not right with my wife, and I'm not loving her in a right way, and my heart isn't in tune with hers, then there's something going on in me, in my heart, that isn't right. So how then can I pray in an effective manner if this isn't right? That's the idea of what Peter was saying. It's not a manipulation thing. It's not like, okay, God, I was gracious to my wife today when she put the toilet paper on the wrong way. I didn't say anything, so I was gracious. So now I'm going to pray for that Lamborghini, and now I expect it because I was gracious. It's not how it works. We're not manipulating God. God's point is your heart needs to be right in prayer. You've got to come with the right attitude. Why does James say if you ask for something with your own lust that you might conceive it on your own or just consume it rather on your own lust? Why is that an issue? Because again, it's a heart problem. I'm at the center of this thing, not God. I'm not praying his will. I'm praying my will and my desires. So that's the point of what we talked about last week, that we are heard, but we have to remember when our prayers aren't being answered, there may be some reasons for that. Another reason is that you don't, as I said last week, you don't know what to pray. You're praying one thing, but God's will is another thing, and you're just not aware of it because you're not an infinitely knowledgeable and wise God. So you're praying what you think, and God says, I appreciate you praying this, and I honor your faith, but that's the wrong thing right now. I have to say no to that because what I have for you over here is going to be better. Not better financially necessarily, not better materialistically, but better for you in your spiritual life. Better for you as far as blessing you spiritually or to make you more like Christ. And this is going to glorify me more effectively than that will. 
So I have to say no to that because, yes, you're asking in faith and your heart is right, but you're just unaware. I said it last week. God saying no to your prayer has nothing to do with God's inability to answer your prayer. It has everything to do with our ignorance of what to pray in that moment. And it's not, like, God's not mad at us for that. He just is a wise and loving heavenly father. He says, hey, I appreciate that, and I wish I could, but that's not the best thing for you right now. So sometimes he says no because it's not the best for us. Now, this is where I want to be careful because those guys on TV go a little sideways here. And they'll start describing what's best for you as something is always seemingly better. But let me tell you this, based on the word of God, God will bring things into your life and allow things into your life that are not going to seem better, but will be better for you. We have to understand that. God allows things in our life that don't seem better than where we were, but are actually better for us in his will and in his perspective. Remember, what did Paul say when we talked about being afflicted? Where's Paul sitting as he's writing this letter to this church? He's sitting in prison. And you think Paul was like, okay, Lord, when I said I want to be more like Christ, this isn't exactly what I had in mind. This isn't seemingly better than where I was when I was free. But it was in that prison that God used Paul to do great things. And so that's what I want us to understand. When we're we're hearing no, we just have to trust. So whether it's unrepentant sin or something in your heart is wrong or, or God is saying, no, that's just not the right thing for you at this time, no matter what the answer to our prayer is, we keep praying because we pray because we're praying in faith, believing in him, not based on what we get. And so as we go into Ephesians, we're kind of moving through here. I want to really encourage us to remember and grasp that our true identity, again, is in Christ. That we were created to enjoy the presence and person of Christ. And a passage from the Gospels always comes to mind when I think about this idea that we were created to enjoy the presence and person of Jesus Christ. And the passage that comes to my mind is when Jesus is questioned whether or not they should pay tax to the Romans, to Caesar. Jesus says, give me a coin. And they give him a coin, and it's got an image of Caesar on it. He says, okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The reason is because the coin had the image of Caesar on it, so therefore it belonged to Caesar. The next question would be, what has the image of God on it that belongs to him? Because Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And if the coin has the image of Caesar and therefore belongs to Caesar, what has the image of God that belongs to God? And the answer is what? You and I. We were created in the image of God, the Bible says. And until we surrender to the person and work of Jesus Christ, until we we find that salvation, and when I say find, I mean accept what he did for us. He found us, right? He came to us. And so when we receive that salvation, now we begin to understand that person and work of Jesus Christ. And now I'm able to live in a way that fulfills my true purpose, my true identity. And I want us to remember that because, again, we, we don't think that way. Some of us in this room, you think your identity is all wrapped up in who you are in this life, meaning your profession. Some of you think your identity is that you're a mom or a dad, a husband or a wife or whatever your career might be. I can tell you guys, my identity is not as a pastor. Being a pastor does not identify me. That's not who I really am. I am a person that knows Jesus Christ and is in Christ, and therefore I am one with him. My identity is in Jesus Christ, not in what I do or don't do. 
But some that's hard to battle with. Some it's like, no, no, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a, I'm a wife, I'm a husband. But if you put your identity in those things, if those things were taken away, which they can be, then you're left wondering, who am I? I thought I was a wife. And then that is taken away from you. I thought I was a husband, and that's taken away. I thought it was this. I thought my whole identity is wrapped up in this. And those, those are good things. But they're temporal things. And they can be taken away. This is why people will work a career for 40 years, retire, and say, now I don't know what to do. I don't even know who I am anymore. Because their career was their identity. Their, that was their life. And so this morning, we have to grasp. And I know this is kind of a summary of everything we've been talking about. But I wanted to kind of end with this idea of summarizing some things before we get to a new some new content, because I want us to remember your identity in Christ determines how you live every day, how you feel, how you experience things, how you, how you battle against trials or, or destructive things that happen in your life, other people that do things to you. How do you handle that when things are falling apart? You have to go back to, I was created and am created in the image of God. I am valued, and I am in Christ. And so again, if you are here and you're not in Christ, We talked about this the first week. There's really only two classes of people in the world, according to God. There are those in Christ, and there are those in Adam. And in your natural state, you are born in the state that you are in Adam. And in Adam, you are liable for your sin. And if you die in Adam, you will be separated from God for all eternity as a punishment for your sin. But when you make the choice to receive Christ as your Savior, to repent of your sins and to trust in him, you are taken from in Adam and placed in Christ. And in that very moment, everything changes. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, then maybe this morning, maybe you would begin to pray and say, God, I want to trust you. And I would ask you to next consider the question, what is it that's keeping you from trusting? What is that thing that's keeping you from believing? What is that thing, that roadblock? that's stopping you, and ask God, God, help me with this. It was so amazing. Just not that long ago, a few weeks ago, I had lunch with a, with a guy that ended up, after lunch, receiving Christ as the Savior. And I'm so excited because he's going to get baptized today. And he made a decision that day that, you know what, I'm tired of living in Adam and trying and trying and trying and not getting anywhere. I, I want to live in Christ and experience what life is really like. And it's exciting to be around someone like that. It's exciting for you when you know someone that's made that choice or when you made that choice. But what happens is sometimes we transition into Christ and we're saved and we're saved and all of a sudden we start getting kind of apathetic. Well, I've been there, I've done that. It just becomes routine, just kind of same old, same old. And my prayer for you is that when you walked in here today, you did not walk in thinking it's going to be just another Sunday. Because if you walked in thinking that, I pray that you're changing that mindset right now. That, God, I don't want just another Sunday. I want a new Sunday. I I want a time when you just speak to me in a new way. And maybe he's going to speak to you in a new way with an old truth. Maybe remind you of some things. And, oh, anybody have a bad memory? Bad memory. Raise your hand if you have a bad memory. If you can't remember you have a bad memory, you should be raising your hand right now, okay? Do I have, if you have to ask your spouse, do I have a bad memory? The answer is yes, okay? Man, sometimes I can't imagine God's patience, <laughs> right? I mean, like, 
He'll teach you something and 10 years goes by and he has to teach you the same lesson again. I, I would be so frustrated with me if I was God. We, we just went through this. Like we've been here. Okay? But I'm so thankful that God is patient with us. And so maybe this morning you would say, God, show me something in your word today. I don't want this to be just another Sunday. Ephesians chapter 6. When we understand our true identity, we can understand we are not only in Christ, not only that, yes, we are afflicted, yes, we are heard, but finally this morning, we are victorious. In Christ, you are victorious. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 as we kind of wrap up this series this morning. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you should be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword, uh, and the sword of the spirit, which is the, the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, Paul says here at the end of this encouragement, but also giving a request. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, and therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I know we've already prayed this morning, but let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask him to bless this time together. Father, we ask that you would bless your word. As you say you would, we ask that it would not return void, but that as the going forth of your word is given, that you would instruct us, encourage us, and help us to stay focused on you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've taught us in the last few weeks. Thank you for the way in which you've encouraged our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer. Thank you for allowing us to speak to you, to come before you today. Lord, we pray that as we spend some time together this morning, that you'd help us to know that we are victorious, not in what we do or who we are, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from your love. We are guaranteed eternal security, Lord, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you have sealed us into the day of redemption. And I pray that we would believe when we leave here today that while, yes, we may fall, we may make sinful decisions, that we can repent of those things and know that we are in Christ. Thank you for all that you do and are going to do in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, Paul gives an amazing illustration on how we not only can, can be, but are victorious over the enemy, Satan himself, as followers of Christ. It must be said as well, before we really get into this and move into this passage closer, that we must have a biblical understanding of our enemy. Paul talks about Satan here, our enemy, the one that comes against us. But we must have the right view of him. Satan is a created being with limitations. We often will blame Satan for something that has everything to do with us and nothing to do with him. James 1, 13 through 15, write it down for notes and you can go back to it later. 
James 1, 13 through 15 tells us that temptation doesn't come from God, but from within. When we are drawn away and enticed, from within we're drawn away and enticed. Some will say, well, Satan does the drawing. Satan is the one in the world that's trying to draw us away. And it's true. He does create tempting opportunities and environments. However, the only reason they are tempting is because of the lust in me, James says. So my point here is this. Satan is going to try to tempt you into sin and is going to try to draw you away. But we can't blame Satan and take no responsibility for ourselves. We can't, as James says, look into the mirror of God's word and say, what needs to change in me? What decisions do I need to make differently? What guards do I need to put into my life? We also tend to focus too much on Satan, trying to speak him away. I've heard that in church language, and it sounds really preachy, and it sounds really biblical, that you need to preach Satan away or or talk Satan away. There's only one way that I can remove the temptation that Satan brings into my life, and that is to say one name, the name of Jesus Christ. I don't have any power over Satan apart from the fact that I am in Christ. But read the Word of God. Our mission, our job in this world is not to defeat Satan, not to talk him down or to talk him out. That's not our job. Our job is pretty simple, to go make disciples, to preach the gospel, to tell the truth of the Word of God, to encourage those in need. And when opportunity comes and and we're out there preaching and Satan tries to tempt us and draw us away or bring opposition against us, we don't need to battle Satan. We merely trust that that victory has already been given to us, that Christ has already conquered him, that it's already done. It is finished, Jesus said. And so we trust in our salvation, we trust in our security, and we move on doing what God has called us to do. Some people spend so much time speaking against Satan. We will face opposition in this world, but remember, you are not why, you are victorious. Christ is why you are victorious in this world. So I want to read these final words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus as we close out this series through the book of Ephesians. He starts by saying in verse 10, finally. And I've always said this is kind of like when a Baptist preacher says in closing. Because when a Baptist preacher says in closing, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. That's what that means. It usually means, now for my next two points. Um, so Paul is not saying finally in the sense of last concluding words in that verse, because he goes on for another 14 verses. So what does he mean here? He means this. Now that I've given you all this information in this book, all in this letter for them, all these, these, these points and these principles and these teachings and all these things that you've learned, to wrap all of that up, now that you have a base of all these things, Let me give you some final encouraging words. And here's what I believe he's encouraging us to know this morning. The first thing we see in verses 10 through 11 is he's encouraging us to know our king. To know our king. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Our king is strong and powerful. Maybe that didn't ring through. Maybe my mic's not working. Our king is strong and powerful. Listen, we need to understand Paul's way in which he structures this passage. Because again, like I said, how do we 
biblically and appropriately identify Satan and the enemy that he is in our lives without underestimating him or overestimating him. I believe Paul gives us a great pattern here. How does he begin this section on our enemy? Well, he starts by reminding us of who our king is. He says, before I even get to who you're battling against in regards to who's attacking you, let me remind you who your king is. We can begin to think of Satan and God as equals, battling across the universe. The truth is, not only are they not equals, the battle only goes on as long as God allows. This is why, I, again, for notes, jot this down. I love the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to rely on self and not on the will of the Father. It may seem like Satan in this passage is the one in charge, the one issuing the challenges, the one issuing the temptation. However, in a moment, Jesus tells him to depart, and Satan leaves. You see, Jesus decided when the temptation was going to begin, and Jesus decided when the temptation was going to end. Satan never once, even while Jesus was on earth, had power over Jesus. That's why I love Matthew 4. Satan shows up trying to be big and bad, trying to tell Jesus what he needs to do, and Jesus responds with what? Scripture. He gives him the word of God. And then when the temptation is over in Jesus' mind, he says, you can go now. And Satan has to leave. See, they are not equals, God and Satan. They are not cohorts fighting together and attacking each other in this equal battle. No, no, no. God is a sovereign, powerful, almighty God. Nothing rivals him. Nothing compares to him. And he created everything else. Something he created has no power over him. Again, it may seem like Satan is coming against you, and it may seem like you have no opportunities to get out from under it. All you need to remember is Jesus is greater. He that is, is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You see, if you are in Christ, you are strong and powerful. Remember the power we spoke about in our second week of this study, that same power that is the supernatural power of God is working in you and available to you. There will be times, however, you are going to be tempted to believe the lie that his strength is not available to you. Paul opens up chapter 4, verse 1, reminding us again that he is a prisoner of the Lord, not merely spiritually, but literally. Again, the question is asked, do you think he felt the temptation to doubt God's power and strength sitting in a prison cell? I believe if he is a human being, the answer is yes, of course he was tempted. But it's in those moments we need to believe by faith that our God is with us and that our God is powerful enough to help us endure. And he is working through you in that power for his glory. And it's amazing to think about the power that's available to us to overcome these things that come against us. And so now that Paul helps us to understand our king and his position and who he is in our life, now we can appropriately identify our enemy. In verses 12 through 13, we see these words. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. The truth is that Satan is very real. We have an enemy that is very real. In our Western culture, we tend to think of Satan as a little red cartoon figure that has a tail and a pitchfork. That's what we think of, isn't it? When you think of Satan, you think of that cartoon image that has been just 
put all over media for years and years and years. Uh, the truth is, the Bible describes Satan much differently. Uh, it says that he is an angel of light and seemingly appealing in appearance. He is pleasant to look upon. Is that what's depicted in most even church descriptions and depictions of Satan? No. We see him as this grotesque figure, or this evil figure. So the question is, why did people paint him that way? I tend to think that people painted him with what sin can do to you. That's what sin looks like at the heart of it. And so a lot of these artists painted Satan in a very, very destructive and, and demonstrative way to show this is really what sin looks like. It's not the appealing thing that first comes in temptation. Uh, but the truth is, if we're looking for that kind of a temptation, we're not going to see the true temptations that come. And I said this before, why is temptation a temptation to sin? What's the temptation in temp being tempted to sin? It is pleasant for a season. It is appealing. It seems fun. It seems interesting. It seems like something we would want. But the truth is when we identify and know that our enemy is Satan, and no matter how it looks, if it's pulling us away from the truth of God, we must resist it by his grace. Then we will see Satan for who he really is, a roaming lion, seeking whom he may devour. See, Paul is warning the church that he loves about a real and constant danger in their Christian lives. The truth is we are at war with this enemy. Also, it's not just we are at war individually. We are at war as a body of Christ. As a church, we need each other. We need each other in this battle. We need each other to give us strength and encouragement. The Lord is there, but remember, the Lord doesn't just use the word of God to encourage us and the Holy Spirit individually. He also puts that in other people's hearts and minds as they are in Christ, and they come alongside and they encourage us as the body of Christ, and we can as one be united and encouraged and provoke one another to love and good works, as Hebrews says. Listen to what I read this week in preparation for this talk. It was just an interesting comment an author made. He says, this is a word to the whole church, not just individuals in the church, but the whole church, laboring, warring, and working together. This is a word for us. It is a word for you, but it's word for you as part of us. Jesus loves us. Satan hates us. Jesus has plans for us. Satan has plans to oppose us. Jesus in every way will bless us, but Satan will in every way seek to undermine that blessing. It's a war. It's so true. But isn't it easy to kind of just fall into the things of life and just kind of forget we're even in a battle? We just get complacent and comfortable. But you have to remember when opposition comes against you, we're not surprised. We're not caught off guard. We're not shocked. <gasps> what is this strange thing that comes against me, Peter says. No, no, no. When that happens to us, it should remind us that we're not looking at this life in an appropriate lens. We see, yes, there are great joys in this life to be enjoyed and to be, be encouraged. But at the end of the day, we shouldn't be surprised when opposition comes because we know we're at war. And our enemy will never quit. He will never quit. But here's a word of encouragement to you. While our enemy will never quit, our Savior will never stop saving. And so I don't care how dark it gets. I don't care what the society looks like. I don't care the political realm. I don't care any of that. All I know is he says, you keep doing what I've called you to do. Keep making disciples. Keep preaching my word. Keep your eyes on me. And you will be victorious. 
Let me say it again. You are victorious. Not you will be and you are. Another thing we have to understand is we understand our identity, identity in Christ, but as well our enemies in this world, is your enemy are not other people. Your enemies are not other people in this world. Satan is our enemy described in the Scriptures, not others in this world. When we understand and know who our enemy is, we can identify who our enemy is not. Those in the world opposed to Christ are not our enemies. The Bible considers them captives. They are imprisoned by the lies of self and Satan, and we must see them in that light so that we can go to them in compassion and declare that they can be free. So our war is not against the captives, it's against the captors. The war is not against the captives. Man, how things change when we see it this way. Our war is not against other people. And that is so hard to put into practice. Because other people, if we're being honest, can be jerks. Other people can be mean and say really hurtful things and do hurtful things to us. They can treat us really, really poorly. And it's hard to not take that aggression out on them. It's hard to not get angry at them. It's hard to not get mad at them. But when you stop and you realize that if they're lost and they're not in Christ and they're acting this way, we have compassion on them, not anger, because we see them as captives, only acting out all they've ever known. And so we go to them and we share the knowledge of Scripture with them. Now, listen, let me say this. It doesn't mean those people are void of any responsibility. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, well, it's just we let it go. There's a lot of things that are out of our hands even when it comes to that in our society today. But the point is, when things happen against us, we have to look at it in the lens of Christ. Yes, they might be liable for some consequences. They're, some, they're responsible for some things. They might need to even make amends on some things. But we see them not in anger, thinking they're our enemy. Listen, if you're here today and you have a, an atheistic worldview or an agnostic worldview and you, you, don't, even, you don't believe there is a God or, or maybe you believe there could be a God but you just don't know, Listen, from the mouth of a pastor and a Christian, you are not my enemy. I am not opposed to you. I might be opposed to your worldview. I might be opposed to how you think in that regard and love to have a conversation with you to encourage you with some things. But our Christian society today, I see this rift developing where it's almost like this this atheist against us kind of thing. And I don't see that in here. I see where it says, hey, they're just unaware. They don't know. Take them the gospel. Have conversations, talk about things, share points of scripture, share points of worldview, have those discussions. But that person is not your enemy. Man, Ravi Zacharias said it well, one of the best debaters and, and Christian philosophers, if you will, in our day. He said it so well in our Bible study that when somebody opposes Christ and asks a question, you have to look beyond the question and see the questioner. And see, that is somebody that was created in the image of God that Christ died for. And you have to answer the question with love and compassion and respect for the questioner. Otherwise, you'll never win the questioner. But we, we don't have that mindset. We think people are our enemy. Paul says, no, no, no. They are not your enemy. Our enemy is Satan. Our enemy is the flesh in here. We're battling this way, and we're battling an external enemy in Satan. But the other people are captives. And so we don't war against the captives. We war against our, their captors. So how do we fight? How do we fight against 
this enemy, this enemy that comes against us. Because as I said, it's nothing to do with you. It has very little to do with you and how you fight. And the key is we know our king, but we also know our weapons. Verses 14 through 18. Let's look at it again real quick. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then I'll kind of break it down quickly for time's sake. Verses 14 through 18 says this, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you should be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. There's a lot going on in that passage. And many of you, VBS, right? You sat in a VBS classroom and they broke down every night with a different part of the armor. Uh, you sat in a Sunday school class and they had awesome flannel graph, right? You guys remember flannel graph? And every Sunday they'd put a different piece of armor on the guy. Anybody use flannel graph? Remember flannel graph? Love flannel graph. How many of you wish there was flannel graph on the stage right now and you would be enjoying that? Okay. All right. Flannel. It's even a fun word to say, isn't it? Flannel graph. Let's all say that together. Flannel graph. Doesn't that just make you smile on the inside? That's great. Many of us sat through classes on this topic, and I want to look at it this way because it's a great content. It's great content, I should say. But I want it to go beyond the Sunday school class. I want it to go beyond the VBS. And this is what I was saying a little while ago, that sometimes we can hear passages like this, and it's the same old, same old. It's just we've heard it so many times. Some of you have taught this in classroom settings time and time again. So I want to walk through here real quick and point out a couple of things and then talk about what does this really look like in our life? Because it's easy to just kind of list a piece of armor and say, okay, the belt of truth, and go on from there. But what does this really look like in our lives today? The pieces of armor are quite simple as Paul describes them. And this is not exhaustive, okay? This is illustrative, okay? There's not literally a belt of truth. He's using a word picture to help that culture understand what was being talked about here. The pieces of armor are such, the belts of truth. The first thing I love about this is you must choose to put on truth over emotion. We said that a couple weeks ago. You must choose to put on truth over emotion. Now, it doesn't mean truth without emotion. Because some Baptist churches, it goes that way. It's all truth, no emotion. And in some other churches, it's all emotion, no truth. And you can't have one or the other. You've got to have it in unison. See, truth, or I should say emotion, submitted to truth is fine. But truth can never be submitted to emotion. What I mean to say is, if truth says this, then I need to feel an appropriate response to that truth, and that's fine. If the Bible says that you are in Christ for, for, forever and that you are sealed into the day of redemption, that should bring a lot of emotion. What kind of emotion does that bring? Joy, right? Love, peace, contentment. Those are all great emotions, and those should accompany that truth. But when I'm feeling stressed or worry or fear or anxiety, I don't let that dictate what is true. I need to say, no, 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 truth says, it, it talks about this in the Word of God, right? What, is, what does the Bible say about when you're feeling stressed? What do we do? Be anxious for nothing but do what? In all things, pray. Man, be anxious for nothing Pray. When you feel anxiety, the truth is you can pray to a God that is over that anxiety, that is over your life. You can pray, God, I know I'm stressing about this, and I know I shouldn't. Would you, would you help me with this? 
When you're worrying about something, same idea, worry and anxiety, same idea. I pray. See, that's truth over emotion. But man, don't go the other direction thinking it's all truth, no emotion. I've been in services like that. You've known people like that. I always love when men use that excuse, and I've said this before. Men will say, well, I'm not, just a, I'm not an emotional person. I'm more analytical. You know, I, I think more logically. Again, I tend to be not a super emotional person, but days like yesterday brought out some emotion. Okay? This is church. We've got to tell the truth now. Okay? I can't be, can't be lying now. If, if you, as a man, that isn't very emotional, but if you went into your workplace and they said, listen, we're downsizing, we just don't have room for you anymore. You can be the most analytical person you want to be, but I tell you, that's going to bring up some emotion. We all battle with emotion to certain degrees, some more than others. And that's why I love that the Bible is not based on emotional response. It's based on a response to truth. Salvation is not based on an emotional response to the gospel. I think today we have a lot of emotional responses in churches, but not much responding to truth. When I respond to the gospel, it has to be a conscious decision I make looking into the truth of what Christ did for me, the truth about my sin, the truth about consequence, and how do I respond to that truth? And it, it becomes very easy to understand, oh, this is the logical response to that truth. And it's accompanied with emotion. Some weep, some celebrate, all of it's fine. But man, it's not about emotion. Why did David lay in his bed weeping with a broken and contrite heart? Because he responded to a truth that he, was a sin, that he had sinned and that he needed repentance. And that response, that repentance, that truth brought emotion. But don't fall into that trap that you think it's all about emotion. So where the void of emotion means you're not responding. I see this in worship all the time in different settings. We think the more emotion that's expressed in worship, the more true the worship is. But that's not really a good gauge. The Bible says worship in spirit and in truth. And so the point is, if we are worshiping in truth to a truth of God's word, and the emotions that accompany that are, are, are appropriate in that response, then we're fine. But we need to understand this. It's, it's not responding emotionally. We put on the belt of truth. And the reason we do this is because it holds everything else together. It ties every other part together. See, if we don't believe the truth of God's word, we can't believe the second part of the armor, which we have righteousness. But Paul goes on to say the breastplate of righteousness and how in the world do I have righteousness? We only have righteousness through Christ. But as that has been given to us, and we can now live in a righteous way, exemplifying Christ, but I have to believe truth of God's word to believe I'm righteous. Otherwise, I'll just keep living in a way that mars the name of Christ because I'll think I'm nothing better. But man, you are in Christ, and you are righteous. You are holy, we said it before, how does Ephesians def define and describe Christians? Nowhere do we called sinners. They're called the beloved, sons and daughters. How about the rest of the New Testament? Show me anywhere where a believer is called a sinner, unless it's the believer saying, I have sinned. I know I have sinned. We got to stop identifying ourselves in our sin and identify ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ. And yes, it's possible to sin as a Christian. It's possible to give in to temptation. But when I do, I repent and I believe that I am saved because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not because I keep a perfect record. 
the breastplate of righteousness was given to you. The third part, he says to have your feet prepared to share the gospel. What this is referring to is always willing to give an answer for the hope in you. And I have to say this again, because as I was preparing this, I thought about our Bible study we went through with our men's group. And it was a, a Ravi Zacharias study, um, and it just dealt with a lot of different secular viewpoints, non-Christian, non-biblical viewpoints, and how we can respond to that. And one of the things they said was, when you're trying to share your faith, what's one of the hardest things about sharing our faith as Christians? Getting the conversation to the gospel, right? You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you want to share your faith, but as the conversation's going, you're like, how do I just work that in here, okay? Now, some of you are super spiritual and you're like, I never have that problem, brother, because I'm always just ready, okay? Well, us normal people that have struggles and issues, okay? I'm teasing. I know. We all, good days, bad days. Some days isn't it amazing. It just comes. And other days you're like trying to fight to find a place to put it in, okay? And they brought something up. I thought it was the greatest out of all the questions we could ask someone to try to get it onto the gospel. One of the greatest questions that we're asked almost weekly that opens the door is a simple and direct question of how was your weekend? I mean, how many of us are asked on a Monday morning at work, how was your weekend? You ask other people, how was your weekend? And how often do Christians just say, it was good, when, man, you could have just said, it was amazing. Yesterday, I got to worship with my church family, and it was, it was amazing what we talked about. Man, it just was so great seeing my church family. And now all of a sudden, guess what? You're moving the conversation along a road that now the gospel makes sense. It fits. Then you can just simply say, do you attend church anywhere? When you ask them how their weekend was, and they say, oh, it was fine. Oh, really, do you attend church anywhere? And then now we can move through that conversation. And guess what? When they say, I'm not really interested in church. I'm not really interested in Jesus. you got two options. I can just continue to beat them into oblivion with the word of God. <laughs> oh, you ain't now, but you're going to be in 45 minutes. I'm going to have you converted. Okay. Or you just lovingly and graciously have a conversation, and when you sense that they're ready to move on, and they're not ready to hear that yet, or you've shared the gospel, and they say, ah, I don't know about all this. For the sake of the next person that shares Christ with them, just let it be led by the Spirit. And say, okay, well, have a great day. Because if you hammer them and hammer them and hammer them and hammer them, and then the next guy comes along, and they say, no, I'm not even going there because, you know what, I tried to... I tried to voice an objection, and I just got obliterated. They didn't even listen to me. So we got to be so careful there. But listen, as we go, we're always ready is the point. And by the way, your, your job isn't to save anyone. You don't save anyone. All you do is just share a message of hope. Here, you're, this is freedom. This is what it looks like. And if they reject it, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. And that's okay because that's not your call either. You don't work in their heart. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You just give them the word and you move on. But you're always ready. You're always looking for an opportunity. Quickly. So we have our feet ready to share the gospel. It means we're always actively looking for ways to share the gospel. Shield of faith. This shield must be taken by choice. Faith is utter dependence on God. Utter dependence on God. The size of your faith does not dictate the size of your shield. I mentioned this before, but um, I've heard it preached that if faith, you have a little shield and you're vulnerable. If you have big faith, you have a big shield and you're protected. That's not at all what Paul was saying. It sounds good to preach and make you feel bad to pray for more faith, but that's not what Paul was saying. Paul's saying the, sh the shield of faith, not a shield of faith. By the way, where do we even get our faith from? 
I only had faith because what does the Bible say? God gave to every man a measure of faith. Even my faith is in him. Even my faith was a gift from him. So when I exercise that faith, it's not even really me. It's him. I'm just, uh, I'm depending on you because you're better. You're greater. You're stronger. The Romans had a large rectangular shield, culture says. And when they would get together in a formation, they could lock those shields together and create basically like an impenetrable little fortress. And so when archers were raining down arrows on them, they could put these shields together in a way that they would interlock them together and be protected from that attack. But here's the thing. They needed the other shields in the group to make it work. And so we individually have our own shield that we're walking through this life and we're depending on him. And it's a shield of faith that we have, but it is the shield of faith that he provides to us. And we come alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ in the church and we interlock those together and we're feeding and fueling each other's faith and we're stronger and we're greater protected because we're interlocking our faiths together. Really, which is the faith because we're really one in Christ. The helmet of salvation, again, involves our thinking and it is crucial we know for a fact that we have been saved and delivered from the power of Satan. It's vital you understand that not only... You will be saved one day, but you have been saved. How do we put on the helmet of salvation? How do we change our thinking? Romans 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Be conformed, right? Be transformed. The Holy Spirit is working, renewing our mind. Finally, he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, this here, in this passage, uh, the word for Word of God, or the Word of God, is not logos, which is the idea in John chapter 1, verse 1. Um, if you have questions on this, I'd love to talk to you more about this, but just a simple idea here. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. That was referring to Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Word of God. That's all of the Word of God. In this passage, it's the word rhema, which means individual word, individual verse, individual passage, individual parts. And the idea is this. Logos deals with the full word, while rhema is a specific verse for a specific situation. Reference Matthew chapter 4. Jesus put this into practice. When Satan was coming against him, he didn't quote him the entire Bible. He could have. He quotes specific verses in response to specific temptations, right? Turn these rocks into bread. Man should not live by bread alone. He gave specific verses for specific temptations. That's what Paul is saying here. When we use the word of God as a weapon against the enemy, we're quoting specific verses for that specific temptation. So if it deals with lust, we quote back a verse that deals with that temptation. But how am I able to do that? What responsibility do I carry then to be able to give those verses out? I must be a student of God's word, obedient to the command to study to show yourself approved unto God. As I'm putting the Word of God into my heart and mind, I'm now preparing myself, and the Holy Spirit will use those verses as a response to temptation that comes. And then we see the secret weapon in verses uh, 18 through really the end of the chapter, in verse 20, or end of the passage. He says, Prayer, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me. What is the secret weapon that we carry as followers of Christ as we put on the armor of God? It's prayer. We spoke about this last week and as well as this morning at great lengths, but how do you see, or how, do you see um, how vital it was to Paul to pray? How, how do you see it in this passage that Paul considered this vital and important because he says, I want you to pray for me that I'll be able to speak the gospel as I'm led to speak it. But then he says, pray for all saints. 
pray and pray and pray. So how do I put on the armor of God practically? I know some people will actually go through each piece mentally and imagine putting it on every morning. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that, but the key is that this is a mental activity to give us the proper perspective. The key thought is that uh, through Christ and all we have given to us spiritually in Christ, we are protected from the enemy. Paul says we need to stand. Here's a key I want us to think on. Four times in this passage, he speaks of standing. With great resolve, we stand firm on the person of Christ. So what does that look like in our lives? What does that look like for you? First and foremost, you start right where you are. You stand for your family in Christ. You stand in your workplace for Christ. You stand in your local church for Christ. The point is, we don't back down. We don't retreat. We know we are victorious, and so we stand. Not in our strength. We've got to put it all in context. Verses 10 and 11 says that we are in his strength. What the Lord is looking for is a generation that will stand when others are backing down or walking away to more comfort or convenience. We stand against anything that comes against our homes and our church. Not against the person, not warring against the individuals. We stand for Christ. And we defend those things. I've met so many men that say, I would die for my wife, I would die for my family. My question to you is not so much will you die for them, but will you live in a way that honors Christ for them, that you leave a legacy for them of faith? That's great, you'll die for your family, but are you even living for Christ before your family? Are you living in a way that honors Christ in your community? Because again, we're so quick to point a finger at the world. Well, look what they're doing and they're doing. Look at them and look at that. And we have to stop and say, no, no, first let me check my heart. Is there anything in my eye I need to resolve? Is there any beam in my eye that I need to take care of? Is there any way that I need to refocus my life back on the person and work of Christ so that now I can go out with appropriate judgment and help those in need? What you must know today before you leave here is this, that you in Christ are victorious. That your identity is in Christ, not in what you do for a living or the role you have in this life as a mom or a dad. It is in the person and work of Christ. Affliction will come. Opposition from Satan will come. But we endure because we are heard by our Heavenly Father. So we stand victorious today in Christ and in his strength. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in a word of prayer. And I appreciate so much your faithfulness this morning and your attentiveness to the service today. I'm going to pray and we're going to have a time of invitation. And as we have this time of invitation, I want you to respond to what God is doing in your life. I want you to think on how are you standing for Christ and do you believe you are victorious? Do you know you are victorious today? And so the guys are going to come. They're going to lead us in a song of invitation. And as they do, I want you to just respond to him this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the way in which you love us. You meet our needs right where we are. Lord, I pray that as we take this time this morning to just spend some time before you, that you would lead, guide, and direct in all these things that we are bringing before you. I know that this message had a lot of content, Lord, and a lot of information. I pray that you'd make it, make it clear to us what you'd have us to do next. Help us to stand victorious. Help us to know that you've given us everything we need to be protected from the enemy in this world. 
the opposition that comes against us and help us to know that other people in this life are not our enemy. We need to go to them as captives and encourage them with the word of God that they can be set free. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing and all the ways in which you're leading and thank you for your grace. Lord, everything we've talked about this morning is by your grace. Salvation is by your grace. And so I pray that if there's somebody in this room right now that doesn't know you as their Savior, that they would repent of their sin, believing that you died on the cross, were buried and rose again to forgive them of their sin. That they could trust in you and find eternal life. And so Lord, I pray that we would rest in your grace, but Lord, also we would know that because we are in Christ, you have called us to live in this world in a way that stands for you. I pray that we would do that this morning, this week, and we watch you make a difference for your glory. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet this morning as you sing out the song of invitation? Would you respond? Maybe you want to come and pray. Bend a knee here at the altar. Come and pray. Maybe you want to pray there in your seats. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him? If you're under attack this morning, you feel like there's opposition, maybe you want to come and say, God, remind me of your truth that is over my emotion. Whatever God is doing, would you respond?